You are tuning into episode two of Genealogy Showcase, a thought-provoking discussion of how and why we study family history. I am Jeff, the show host. Today, I am talking with one of the world's most sought-after business consultants who began looking into one of the most fascinating but misunderstood mysteries of life through the eyes of an engineer. Have you considered the origins of DNA and where it comes from? My guest, Perry Marshall, is the author of Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. The great coach, Vince Lombardi, had an approach to teaching his team the fundamentals. He began with his now famous catchphrase, This is a football. It was meant to take his professional athletes back to the basics. While he spoke those words, he held an object in his hand. It was a football. Now, let's ask what would have happened if an opposing coach from another team barged in, gasping out of air, and said, No, Vince, you're wrong. This is a football. And proceeded to hold up a similar object, though obviously one that was deflated. Oh, there would be controversy. Of course, there would be protests that an opposing coach would barge in on a team meeting. But setting that bit of detail aside, what about the claim that there was an alternative view of what a football was? Do you think there would be an ongoing argument for a year or more, resulting in all of America splitting differences for and against one side or the other? That would be outrageous. What if the argument went on for 150 years? There has been an argument going on for 150 years, and it's still going on today. But it's not about football. It's about life. It's about us. When studying DNA, sometimes we need to go back to the basics. But how can we go back to studying the fundamentals if nobody knows what those fundamentals are? Like where it came from, what it is. Have you considered the origins of DNA and where it comes from? How does it change from generation to generation? Our guest on the show began 12 years ago looking into one of the most fascinating but misunderstood mysteries of life through the eyes of an engineer. He is the author of Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. I welcome to the show, Perry Marshall. This is Perry. Hello, Perry. How are you? Just another day of mystery, suspense, and intrigue, and yourself. I'm doing good. It kind of struck you that DNA was code, and that's how you got started. Can you talk about that, DNA being code? So so this this whole thing started the way it probably does with a lot of people, which was essentially a religious argument uh, with my brother. And, um, and all of a sudden, I find myself in the swamp of, okay, so... Uh, how does life develop and where do we all come from? And, you know, I, everybody's had that conversation sometime or, or another. And, and I, I became intensely curious. I knew that I didn't know. I didn't um, have any super strong opinions about evolution and what, whatnot. I, I thought there might be a variety of interpretations that, that would be fine. But what really rattled me with the, was this notion that, gee, you know, maybe a random purposeless process could actually develop life on Earth, which it kind of offended me as an engineer. I was like, I don't think the world works that way. Like, I've never seen it work that way, but a lot of biologists say it does. So who's right? And I just decided I have to know. And so I floundered around for a good little while and I... 
I felt very uncomfortable. Um, I would, I would read this book or that blog or listen to this show or video. And then, and, and I would form one an opinion and then the other side would come along and they would have a counterpoint and I would just kind of go back and forth. And I, I was really feeling like no sense of direction. And one day I suddenly found the start of what I was looking for. I was, I was trying to understand the genetic code. I was trying to understand how DNA actually works. And I suddenly, bam, I made this huge connection and it was, Hey, wait a minute. This is digital code and DNA is a communication system. Well, I know communication systems because I spent six years of my life in that business, uh, specifically communication systems for factory equipment. And I wrote a book called Industrial Ethernet, first edition 2002, second edition 2004, third edition coming out this year, 2017. And hey, wait a minute. And I just had this giant flash of recognition. Wait a minute. All the stuff that's in this Ethernet book, there's stuff about error detection, error correction, copying errors, um, how, how data is transferred from point A to point B. All of this is relevant to DNA. And in fact, DNA does a lot of the same things that your Wi-Fi or your Ethernet router do. And suddenly it was like my feet had touched the bottom of the swimming pool and I realized I can begin to make sense of this and, and so that's that's what happened. So, yes, DNA is code. It's literally code, just like Morse code or barcode or zip code or, you know, file formats on your hard drive. And and that is absolutely huge. And, and this this is one of the reasons why technology is driving biological discoveries so heavily now. Now, people that are interested in the origins of life, I mean, they're assumed to be either a creationist or evolutionist, siding with uh, one viewpoint or the other. Can you provide a little background describing the war that's gone between these two viewpoints, uh, science and religion? How long has it been in the last couple hundred years? Well, yeah, um, especially, especially in the United States. Um, it's especially intense here. So... You know, in, in Western civilization, up until maybe roughly 1800 or so, people read the Genesis story in the Bible. They assumed that, well, this is just literally and simplistically true. And they had genealogies and, you know, hey, you know, the, the Adam was created on, you know, September 4, 4004 BC. And it was almost like, like that. Now, mind you, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit. There were a lot of nuances and other views, but mostly, you know, this, this is what people thought. Well, um, a lot of things started coming along and changing that. One of them was modern geology. As people started studying layers of rocks and all this kind of stuff, it was like, well, I think the earth is a lot older than that. And and then you had modern astronomy, um, which added to that uh, with the size of the universe and the speed of light and everything. And, you know, and then, of course, as everybody knows, you've got Darwin's theory of evolution from 1859. And, you know, when that came out, you know, this 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 big fight erupted and, and to a naturalist, 
an evolutionary story is very simple, very beautiful, very harmonious, very parsimonious. If I could use, you know, like a simple, elegant explanation, but you know, to religious people, it's like, well, that's just a blind, purposeless, meaningless billiard balls banging around in the universe story. So, you know, so I believe God made the universe and I do think it's 6,000 years old. And so really end up with these two extremes, you know, one extreme is, yeah, the earth really is 6,000 years old and God made all the animals individually. And on the other far extreme is, well, we're not even sure where the universe came from, but it's obviously here. And then all you need is random copying errors of DNA. You need life to somehow emerge, which I suppose it had to sooner or later. Again, it's obviously here. And so here we are and there is no purpose. We make up our own purpose. So those are like the two polar extremes. And then there's all kinds of shades of gray in the middle. Now, what I think is most important is what neither side is telling you. Uh, there's some really interesting things that you really don't hear about from the creationist side or the intelligent design side. And there's a lot of things you don't hear about from the Darwinian side. And I, I think these are literally the this is the biggest st untold story in modern science or maybe the whole history of science. It's really huge. And so that's why I wrote my book, Evolution 2.0. The industry has coined the terms Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve to refer to a single ancestor of each gender of all living people today. Now, these name references are obviously biblical. Uh, do you think – Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you think scientists who first started using these biblical names were using them because they were in agreement with the Bible's take on origin, or was well, it just meant as a point of reference? You know, there there are certain words you can't seem to get away from. So, for example, the word gene in genetics comes from the word genesis, which means beginning, right? And, you know, there, there are just some, some terms you can't seem to avoid, I. I think it's also interesting that, you know, in English, we have the word design and everybody knows what it means. And even people who do not believe that life is designed still can't manage to to avoid using the word design. Like they'll say, well, that's what a butterfly is designed to do. And even think, even though they think the butterfly was designed by a completely purposeless process, there isn't any other word. You know, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, tried to get the word designoid to take. Uh, and designoid meant things that appear to be designed. But since there are no things that appear to be designed in the human realm that aren't designed, that, you know, that 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 word never stuck. But, you know, you you, you make a larger point, which is you always have to be aware of how your words limit your thinking because they do and how do how do your words define your thinking yeah, there's a y dna and mitochondrial dna uh and they don't go through recombination as in the autosomal dna and it's supposed to be passed down unchanged how mm -hmm. how did all the different haplogroups form to begin with well let me just uh back up and say uh so Y chromosome is is a chromosome that men have that women don't have. Mitochondrial DNA is every I don't know if every most cells in your body um, have mitochondria, 
And those are, those are the, um, they're literally cells within a cell that process oxygen and turn it into energy. And I believe they, at one time, were free bacteria that symbiotically merged with animal cells. And, and so a mitochondria, because it's actually a free-floating bacteria that is now embedded inside a cell, it has its own DNA. And so men get Y chromosome through the male line and women get mitochondria, well, actually, I believe everybody, if I'm not mistaken, gets uh, mitochondria from the female. But this this gives us the ability to track the different sexes independently of each other in genetic studies and then make inferences and explanations. Now, I'm not sure if I know the answer to your question about uh, haploid groups, but I don't know, maybe maybe we can take a different approach to that question and I'll know how to answer it. Oh, sure. Certain types of DNA are supposed to be passed down from generation to generation to generation for thousands of years, not yeah. changed. But there is a genetic difference. When you have a G DNA test done, there's a genetic difference that might show up uh, a distance of one or two, which means one mutation. And that mutation could be one in 10 generations. It could be one in 100 generations. Mm. But that difference yep. is there. There's been a change. How that change might have come about if the DNA is supposed to be passed down unharmed. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can explain that. So, so in DNA, you have copying errors. Um, now, cells have a tremendous amount of resources and machinery for preventing and correcting copying errors. In fact, this is one of my biggest discoveries. I reasoned that when I began to understand the connection between computer data and genetic data, and how similar they are, I realized, well, there's no way life on Earth could even last, you know, one year, let alone millions of years, without incredibly sophisticated error correction machinery. And sure enough, I found it's true. Um, in fact, every time a cell replicates, there are three distinct layers of error correction. So it'll go through and it'll check for errors and uh, it'll find them, and then it'll repair again, it'll, it'll repair again. And so what you end up with is going from a one in a million error rate to a one in a billion error rate. And uh, cells have an exquisite ability to detect these errors. However, sometimes errors still creep in. And so every few generations, you'll get a little point mutation somewhere in the DNA where, you know, it's just, it's just like if you got a Microsoft word doc from somebody and one of the letters in that document was off by, you know, it was supposed to be a J and suddenly it's a semicolon or, or something like that. Well, th those accumulate. And so we have a, a limited ability to, look at 
different lineages and say, well, this seems to have accumulated six copying errors, and this over here seems to have accumulated 20 copying errors. So I think the six is six generations, and I think the, the 20 is 20 generations. However, there's all kinds of problems with that where, you know, I, I would not be very trusting of dating when a particular human lived based on that because there are so many variables. So does that help you all, uh, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. It does, Perry. And and I want to inject something. There is a hugely popular myth, which is that evolution comes from the copying errors. It does not. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Copying errors destroy information, end of story. They do not improve. They do not cause evolution. They cause de-evolution. They cause birth defects and cancer and, you know, diseases and death. Okay? What evolution is caused by is the active participation of the cell in adapting to the environment. It does not come from accumulations of copying errors. And so, and th this is, I, I am absolutely positively certain that what I just said is correct because it's fundamental engineering communication practice and theory. But there, there's this kind of urban legend in biology that that the DNA mutations that cause evolution are, are just copying errors. And so, um, a lot of scientists have a completely wrong conception of copying errors in general. And, and a lot of people don't know how carefully the body uh, defends itself against copying errors. And so I think we actually have to understand the error correction process better before we have any real ability to make significant, precise dating judgments of uh, like ancient remains and things like that based on DNA copying errors. I think you have to use other kinds of information to get those conclusions. All right. So a copying error is not going to make an improvement. No, it is not. No, no. It, it would be so rare as to be almost impossible. Is that what is wrong with the Darwin theory? Yes. Yes. In fact, now, here's what's funny, Jeff, is Darwin's original 1859 theory is better than the new one they gave us in the 40s that most people are still hearing about now. Okay, so, so for example, Darwin believed that if a bird learned um, how to fly maybe a certain migration pattern, that somehow or another that the learning would end up getting passed to the offspring. And uh, in technical terms, they usually call that Lamarckism after a guy about 200 years ago who popularized that idea. In the 1930s and 40s, a bunch of new people came along with something called the modern evolutionary synthesis, which is now called neo-Darwinism. And they said, no, 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 that doesn't work. You know, if I... If I have a thousand rats and I cut off their tails, their babies aren't going to be born with cut off tails. That's silly. They didn't know that they were wrong. 
And that Darwin had actually been right that there is a whole very uh, sophisticated process called epigenetics where organisms can switch certain genes on and off in response to their environment and they can pass those changes to their offspring. And so literally every single generation of life on earth has been modifying its own genes in response to the environment, trying to equip its offspring to be better suited to whatever is coming next. And so old school Darwinism was very, very wrong on this point. And what they told, I mean, this is in a thousand textbooks and people have been repeating this for 70 years. People have been telling you that random copying errors of DNA cause evolutionary mutations. Most are bad. Some are good. The good ones out survive the bad ones and everything gets better and better. And that, that is just not true. What is, what is true is that the organisms are constantly actively adapting, which it, it turns the whole theory of evolution upside down. It has tremendous implications. It, it changes the way you understand everything. And so Darwinism isn't the only thing that has its faults. <laughs> I know there's a, there's a lot of people that are trying to get creationism as an option into you know, schools and, uh-huh. and learning. It's like, well, if you're going to teach Darwinism or if you're going to teach evolution, whatever they want to call it, you know, not necessarily that you got to do away with it, but how about providing creationism as an option? Or maybe mm-hmm. they just want to do away with evolution altogether and and teach creationism only. Um, I don't think that's a very good solution. Um, let let me uh, let me back up and tell you a little bit more of the story. So, my younger brother Brian, he got a seminary degree, you know, so meaning he you know spent four years studying theology. And then he moved to China and he worked there as a missionary for four years. And when he came home, he was almost an atheist. And at the very end of his time there, we're getting into this argument. And and I was, uh, you know, I guess a sort of a creationist. Uh, maybe you could have at the time you could call me an old earth creationist. And Brian had turned into a card carrying Darwinist. And we're having this argument. And like, I didn't really know the answer. And and probably a year after that, the famous Dover trial came out where they were trying to get intelligent design taught in schools, and that ended up getting defeated. And so I went down this road, and uh, I kind of had to form my own opinion about it. And and so here's here's what I discovered. I discovered a mix of really interesting things. Uh, One thing that I discovered was that evolution really does happen, and it really happens in real time. You don't have to wait a million years to see it happen. There are certain very specific things that you can do to get a brand new species in literally one generation, and that if you put organisms in the right circumstances, they will massively adapt in real time. Okay, and so evolution is true. It's not random. It's not gradual. It's not accidental. It's not passive. It's active. That's the first. That's one thing that I discovered. The other thing that I quickly realized, and this goes back to the whole conversation about genes and communication and and digital code is 
you know, Jeff, there's a million codes out there, right? There's, there's barcodes and zip codes and HTML codes and computer codes and on and on. You know, out of a million codes, 999,999 are designed. And there's one code that we don't know where it came from. And there's no codes that aren't designed that anybody knows. And so the inference would be that DNA is designed. It has every appearance of being designed. Well, I've actually been putting this out there online in talks and speeches and everything for about 12 years now. And I've in 12 years of debating with literally thousands of people and presenting this to, I mean, my talks have been heard by hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. I don't know how many. Nobody's ever shown up and said, hey, I can show you a code that nobody designed. Nobody can show you that. Now, so the natural conclusion would be that DNA is designed. But I realized that in order to frame this as a proper scientific testable argument, um, you really need to put it to the test. And you can't come to an absolute conclusion um, if you don't really know. So I decided to sign a technology prize to this. So I have a $3 million technology prize for chemicals to code. If anybody can show how you get from chemicals to code without cheating, I think that would be extremely valuable. And if my private equity investment group is able to patent it, we will buy the patent from you for $3 million. And if you go to naturalcode.org, you can read all about it. We have a whole description of what we're doing there. You know, I would love for somebody to figure this out. For now, nobody has figured this out. Nobody knows where life came from. There are all kinds of theories, and I applaud people for coming up with theories and trying to figure it out, but nobody's solved it. And so, uh, in a certain sense at least, you know, there is an argument for creation. Um, there's certainly an argument that whatever it was that produced the first cell, it had to be fantastically orderly, something beyond what humans currently know how to do. And so, you know, you have a real dilemma with this thing. Uh, meanwhile, what's being taught in schools is neo-Darwinism, which is about probably 60% wrong and only 40% right, which is really tragic. And, you know, the part they're getting wrong is all the interesting stuff. So there's a big opportunity. And I'm telling you, when you go down this rabbit hole, it is so fascinating when you find out how evolution really works and how it really happens. Absolutely. I do find it fascinating. Is there anything else that you would like to wrap up with? Well, you know, look, um, I, I know that this is a, a very, you know, touchy subject. In fact, Jeff, I'm, you know, I salute you for having me on and, and being willing to, t uh, to, to talk about this. I think that the truth is actually in the middle. And personally, my personally belief is evolution is actually the best argument for God because 
you know, whether God made the first cell as like a miraculous event or whether it somehow emerged from the birthing of the universe, however that happened, life is amazing and life does something that human technologies don't do. Life heals itself and itself evolves and itself adapts. And, you know, computers don't do that. Software don't, doesn't do that. You know, we're starting to have really primitive forms of artificial intelligence like Siri and Alexa. But, you know, they're really, really crude compared to what living things do. And I just want to encourage everybody listening. Do not be afraid of the subject. Do not be afraid of this question. Follow the rabbit hole where it leads. You can go to CosmicFingerprints.com and you can sign up for three free chapters of my book, Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's got over 100 reviews, uh, four and a half stars. Uh, read the reviews. People find it fascinating. And I think there's a whole story here that most people have never heard. And I think it really disarms this war between science and religion. There, there is no need for that war at all. It, it is not necessary. Oh, well, thank you very much for your insights. I really do appreciate it. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me on your show. Like I said, you know, it's a hot potato topic. Some people don't want to touch it. I appreciate that you decided to go down the rabbit hole and, and I hope people can explore. Uh, again, you can go to CosmicFingerprints.com. You can get free chapters of the book. Um, you can you can check us out on Facebook. And, and uh, I think you'll really enjoy what you find there. Okay. Well, thank you. Take care, Jeff. Okay. Bye, Perry. Bye. Genealogy Showcase is a production of the Genealogy Podcast Network. You can find other shows at genealogypodcast.com. <laughs>